Hey, this is The Last Coffee House. We have another big book today. American entertainment media tends to focus on the world-breaking crimes of the Nazis over the numerically more devastating ones of the Soviets. Even today, the ideologies of communism and socialism have been kind of whitewashed, despite what happened under those regimes. So, published in 2004, Gulag by Anne Applebaum sought to provide a thorough history of the notorious institution that quietly claimed millions of lives. So, as always, we will first talk about the contents of the book to the best that we can, then we'll go into my analysis of the merits of the book, and then we'll go into kind of a, a big picture understanding of how all this stuff fits into our knowledge of the world. Okay, so what are the contents? We've got Summer 1918. Lenin was already imprisoning people at this point. The, the seeds of the gulag we see right in 1918. Of course, you had the revolution in 1917, so it was, it was pretty quick. There were 84 camps by 1921, and in 1929, they really expanded the idea and application of forced labor. You had the police takeover at a certain point, so the police started being the ones who were administering the camps. And a lot of the camps, they produced much of the goods that went out through Soviet society. So you'd have logging and mining and construction and even designing airplanes were all part of different camps that were being run by the Soviets. Between 1929 and 1953, 18 million people passed through what would be considered gulags. And these wouldn't end until Stalin died in 1953. One of the things that the author points out here is that all would object to wearing a swastika today, but not the hammer and sickle. Spielberg didn't make a movie of Stalinist concentration camps, and the most recent major movie I know of that was made about Stalin was that one, The Death of Stalin, which was a comedy. And there's this kind of weird boredom and indifference to Stalinist terror in general. Even though he killed more Ukrainians alone than Hitler killed Jews. And then you have the Gulag Archipelago, big deal, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that would eventually come out and enlighten a lot of the world about these things. And this system, keep in mind, this system under the Soviets, it really espoused social justice kinds of values and this idea of equality for all. So it sounded good. And one of the reasons that the author offers for the disparate treatment of these two figures is that we, as Americans or the Allied powers, don't like to think that we defeated one mass murderer with the help of another. One important point, the gulags reflected culture. So a quarter of the gulag prisoners died of starvation, and it reflected what was happening outside the gulag too. In 1918, there were already 2.2 million prisoners of war. The gulags themselves were unique relative to the concentration camps that were being perpetrated in Germany and places like Germany. So concentration camps under the Nazis were about keeping people not for what they've done, but for what they are. And in the USSR, it was more, especially initially, it was more about what people did against the regime. So it was really minor things they could do, but it was about what they did. But what this offered was a much broader method of being able to get people into the gulag. You only have a limited number, you know, population that you can pull from if it's about who they are. You have a much broader population that you can pull from it's about, if it's about, quote, what they did. Because you could just make up new rules for what they do and what you can imprison people for. You know, things like stealing pencils or something like that might get you in into the gulag, and eventually it wouldn't even matter what you did or didn't do. They just pulled from anywhere in the population that they wanted or needed. And there were things like the enemies of the state, or perceived enemies of the state, would, would be humiliated. They'd be fired from jobs, they'd get divorced, they'd be attacked by their children. 
And all these were methods of pressure that were applied to people who were even just minor budding dissidents. So what about the origins of the Gulag? Like I said, so it started out about political enemies. That's what it was about. But eventually it became about forced labor, specifically. There was this weird policy that was instituted where you would feed a prisoner according to their work. So the more work they did, the more they got fed. The less they did, the less they got fed. Stalin had this idolatry of Peter the Great. And one of the major things that Peter the Great did was he used forced labor of serfs to build St. Petersburg. So Stalin also had this weird thing. He loved Peter the Great and had this weird thing about large groups of people, the sight of large groups of people, even when it came to dancing in tandem or in movies. It was just something that really appealed to him. And then he took special interests in the gulag and administering the gulag. And they would eventually start arresting people in different special fields. So if they need an expert in any particular field, they just go arrest somebody and say they did something against the state or whatever so they could have their expertise to work on whatever projects they wanted to get done with the gulag. But they also imprisoned women and children at various times. So it wasn't merely about just putting people to hard labor. You had uh, the White Sea Canal at one point. It was 141 miles that had to be dug out with several dams along the way, and it had to be made within 20 months. And over the course of it being made, 25,000 people died. Of course, these big numbers. <laughs> That's one of, the, one of the earliest quotes I remember learning was Stalin saying that one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a statistic. But 25,000 people died just on this one project, one, the White Sea Canal, over 20 months. Then there was the Trans-Siberian Railway, which there were a whole bunch of issues because there was just really poor planning. They just started throwing bodies at it to try to get it done, and they would end up missing each other when they were try supposed to meet somewhere, you know, when they're building this railway. But because they had such poor planning, they'd end up missing each other and waste all sorts of resources and time and everything. The Kolyma Gulag was the most visible gulag, K-O-L-Y-M-A. But that was like the representative. It would be, I guess, equivalent to Auschwitz if you wanted to talk about gulags. Then at a certain point, there was the Great Terror, where you had these mass arrests and deportations. And right before Stalin died, they actually started going after Jews, specifically. And the late camps actually began deliberately working people to death. It was the point to try to work them so hard that they died. And all of this was under the cover of this one writer, Maxim Gorky, who propagandized for the Soviets. And it's representative of this phenomenon where you'd have entertainers or intellectuals who stump for really, really bad ideas and provide cover for them. Okay, the conditions in the Gulag specifically, this was mostly after, there's this some kind of a, uh, an order around July 30th, 1937, where they had these new, more draconian methods, uh, like execution quotas for the Gulags. Prisoners were stripped to their underwear before being shot. Sometimes it was random. Sometimes they killed people who were just being annoying or something like that. Sentences were passed without trial. Initially, early release was an option. If you worked hard and you did a good job, you could get early release. But then they got rid of that because what would happen is that they would lose the best and retain the worst of the workers. So instead of early release, they decided to institute a medal program. So you'd get a medal if, if you did really well instead of early release. And then they started broadening reasons for arrest. So even if you were just a relative of somebody who tried to flee across Soviet borders, so you didn't do it yourself, you were just a relative of them, then you became vicariously liable and ended up in a gulag. 
and they did these late night raids to arrest people for this. Uh, the, this is the most common type of arrest. It was in the middle of the night, they would come to your door, and there's this recounting of how people would feel relief if somebody knocked on their door and said it was a fire. You know, their house was on fire, it was going to burn down. <laughs> they, were, they would feel relief that it was just that and not being carted off to the gulag. They had to travel a bunch of prisoners, you know, from place to place. And on these travels, you'd get one cup of water a day. And trains would just stop to remove corpses. So they'd stop and just pull bodies off. Just imagine what effect that would have on you if you were on one of those. Some camps would go five days without a food delivery. So you'd have people already at starvation levels. And then they'd have to wait five extra days to be able to get any kind of food. And I remember they talked about some of the food as being this black bread that probably wasn't edible anyway. But that's what they'd have to subsist on. While they were doing insane manual labor, by the way, not just like sitting around playing video games. But one thing that kept coming up is that these things were very poorly organized. So you'd have things like forestry tools that go missing. You'd have inappropriate tools for textiles. So they'd have to make these makeshift tools to try to make textiles. The machinery broke down constantly. So there's incredible inefficiency all throughout these things. And all the while, you'd have all this propaganda going out about the triumphs of socialism and how great the Soviets are doing and how everybody's fed and every, everything's wonderful, even though everybody was starving. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the guards had more freedom than Nazi guards, so there was more of a spectrum for how they were treating their prisoners. Some guards were horrible and draconian and killing people and starving people and all that sort of thing, and some guards would make an effort to reward people who did the right things. And there's this whole idea of doctors being these saviors in this situation, because if you could get a doctor to treat you, then you got to stay in a bed, you got to be in a clean area, you got food, you got water, so and you got out of the cold, and you didn't have to work. So it would be this incredible reprieve. So if a doctor took a liking to you or something like that, and said, oh, this person needs this care or whatever, then it could be a huge deal. It could make everything so much better. So it was a big deal, to the point where some people started self-mutilating. And eventually there were these really harsh punishments that came along for this, but still it was, it was this weird ray of light in the midst of all this that if you could get a doctor to need to treat you, then you'd get this incredible reprieve from everything that was going on. Other ways they tried to cope were they would tell classical literature, the entireties of classical literature that they could remember. They would just tell each other these stories. A lot of people tried to escape, of course. Uh, there's one person, a group of people, who actually had to walk 35 days, 35 days to get to a border to get out of it. They'd escape the camp and then have to walk 35 days through the snow to get to this place. There were strikes, you know, that were often put down very harshly. There were some later on where they were just running people over with tanks to put down this rebellion. And they were, they were still smuggling, there were still people trying to get out of work, and these tricks that they would use, they would pile up these cut down trees and just move them around so it looks like they were, they were working and being productive, but a lot of times the foreman of the area just wouldn't go out there because it was so cold and miserable, they just wouldn't go check on it. So it, there were these different ways that they would cope, but in smuggling in alcohol, one method they had to do this was they would put a condom down their throat, so it would go into their stomach, and fill it with alcohol, and they'd have to tie it to one of their teeth so that it didn't fall all the way down. But it wasn't even regular alcohol, it was some kind of concentrated spirit or something like that, that if it actually broke in their stomach, it would kill them. <laughs> so they had to be really careful, you know, or if it came unattached to their tooth, then it would be a problem. But at this point, they just didn't care. But so you'd get that out, and they'd, they'd flip you over, you know, so you were doing like a handstand, and drain all the alcohol out, and then they could, they could make a bunch of other drinks using this very concentrated 
Raiden spirit. But eventually it would come to an end. Stalin died in 1953. It was determined that the camps were a severe drag on the economy and the new leaders knew that many of the prisoners were just plain innocent. Khrushchev finally in a, a private meeting he attacked the cult of personality around Stalin and then you had millions returning from the camps and there were this recounting of how people were just I mean utterly dead inside. Uh, they were not able to come back from this in any meaningful way. Even when they got back to their families or found out that their families were alive it would be you know years and years that the families had disappeared and there was just nothing left. And then it took it took a lot of time for artists to be able to openly talk about what actually happened in the camps and start writing about this in earnest. And there was a lot of backlash to it and a lot of difficulty working through this whole thing. And eventually there was amnesty in 1986 and then the camps closed for good in 1992. But that's, I mean, obviously in 800 pages there is a whole lot more that, that goes on that's talked about. But I'm trying to make this <laughs> a little easier to follow. I know I go on these, these flights where I'm just like jumping from idea to idea to idea and just throwing some stuff in here and it's so fast and, and it's really difficult to sit and try to think about things. So I'm trying to just break it down into more digestible chunks so we're not racing through everything and it's not a 45 minute episode or anything. But okay, so we go into my analysis of this whole book. It was a history and that's definitely what it read like a history, which was wonderful. <laughs> It recounts detailed descriptions using many sources of what happened, and it's just trying to do that. The agenda is to inform rather than to sell something. But it's very long. Like I said, it's like 800 pages, so you need to be in the mood, in the mood to read about some gulags or really have an interest in this area. There are some, I think we read another really great book that was about the history of the September 11th attacks, and that really felt present and necessary. Uh, some aspects of this, you know, it's about the gulags and things that we should know more about and be better educated about. But as an American, it was more difficult to really appreciate the significance of what a gulag is and what happened over the course of the 20th century. There is something that's it's amazing because there is something that stands out so much, it might have just been the PR, about the Nazis relative to the Soviets, that it's easier to just kind of gloss over it. Anyway, just moving into the big picture, I guess. Uh, so, I mean, fascism obviously was not the only villain of the 20th century. And the thing when it comes to Europe versus America and the political spectrum is that we have different ideas of how the political spectrum is situated. And this is causing a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to evaluating where people are on the spectrum and how you can hurl insults at your opponents. So the most important political question should be, okay, what is the power of the federal government? Now, obviously in, in Europe you might put, or wherever you might put, fascists on one side and communists on the other side of a political spectrum. But when it comes to actually just looking at the power of the government on the left, it would be more power because the government has to do more. And you, you wouldn't have that challenged or anything when it comes to American politics when you're talking about things like social programs. But by that metric, you would have to put fascists on the left as well because they have more government power. That's the point. Whereas on the right, it's weak government power. You don't want, you want the government only to have as much power as is absolutely necessary to protect fundamental rights. That's the whole point. So this is the weird thing that we get into where we want to say that in the United States, left, leftists want to say that on the right, they are fascists when that doesn't make any sense when it comes to power. Because on the right, you specifically want to divest the federal government of as much power as you can. 
Where the confusion comes in is that under kind of the mythical communism, you've got this idea of completely taking away the power from the government and giving it spontaneously in equal measure to all of the people. So you've got this weird kind of situation and it's something that hasn't actually happened anywhere and could not actually happen anywhere. You always end up with a vanguard party who is going to take power and eventually abuses their power and tries to force people to do all sorts of things. But that's where the confusion comes in. When when it comes to that and one thing to keep in mind is that the difference between communism and socialism I mean generally if you want to talk about political science and get really dicey into it is that communism is kind of supposed to have a government that has a vanguard party that protects everybody's interests so you concentrate the power whereas socialism would be more a broad investment of power in everybody although the whole thing is you can have the ownership of the means of production by a government entity in either one of those the whole question is how you would organize that so if everybody like literally everybody all 330 million americans owned the means of production so owned all the rights to all the industry how does that work who administers it it's it's a complete mythical imaginary situation if you have more than 40 people you're not going to be able to do this even with 40 people it's going to be tough but so that's that's the issue so uh, when you look at the spectrum when it's based on government power if that's what you're looking at politically then you would have anybody who supports a high amount of government power they would be on the left and anybody who is against high amounts of government power on the right anyway thank you so much for listening this is the last coffee house i hope it was a little easier to follow and discuss that particular book and we'll try to keep that going and i i will see you on the next one hope all is well all right bye (laughs) 